Father, would you show us that that's true? Would you show us that we can let go of everything else because what we find in you and in your presence is enough? And I pray tonight, especially, Lord, that it would just be clear to us that you see us, that we are seen, that we are known, and that we're in your presence at every moment. I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Harry's going to read our text and then get started. When you're practicing your piety, mind you don't do it with an eye on the audience. Otherwise, you won't have any reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give money to the poor, don't sound a trumpet in front of you. That's what people do when they're just play-acting in the synagogues and in the streets. They do it so that people will be impressed by them. I'm telling you the truth. They've received their reward in full. No, when you give money, don't let your left hand have any idea what your right hand is up to. That way, your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will repay you. When you pray, you mustn't be like the play actors. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that the people will notice them. I'm telling you the truth. They have received their reward in full. No, when you pray, go into your own room, shut the door, and pray to your Father, who is there in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will repay you. When you pray, don't pile up a jumbled heap of words. That's what the Gentiles do. They reckon that the more they say, the more likely they are to be heard. So don't be like them. You see, your father knows what you need before you ask him. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. The Lord's Prayer obviously comes here, but for time, we're going to do the Lord's Prayer by itself next week. So we're cutting Believe it or not, we're cutting out the Lord's Prayer for this week. When you fast, don't be gloomy like the play actors. They make their faces quite unrecognizable so that everyone can see their fasting. I'm telling you the truth. They have received their reward in full. No, when you fast, tidy your hair and beard the way you normally do and wash your face so, so that others won't notice your fasting, except your father privately. Then your father, who sees in private, will repay you. Thanks, Harry. When I was in seventh grade, I had my very first real girlfriend. Um, uh, I say real because in fifth grade, I had technically had a girlfriend, but it was the kind that you didn't talk to. You just pass notes to each other, usually through other people. And like the peak of relational connectedness was if you actually handed a note directly you know, to one another in the hallway. Uh, But in seventh grade, I had a real girlfriend who I had real conversations with, and I don't recommend this. So if you have a teenager and they come home and at some point say, well, Mr. Thad had a girlfriend when he was in seventh grade, feel free to give me a call and I will tell them all the reasons that this was a really bad idea. Uh, But it happened, and uh, it was a big deal to me for multiple reasons. And one of those was I was not, uh, I was in a a larger school. This is before we moved out to to a small town in West Texas. And so I was in a larger school. I was not part of the popular crowd. And this girl was. And somehow that happened. um, And she was not like uh, the very center of that universe, but she was friends with the people who were the center of that universe. And so for me, you know, getting that sort of proximity and connection to that, uh, was kind of a bonus to having a girlfriend, uh, this girl. 
in seventh grade, and I worked very hard to impress her in lots of different ways. Uh, I, the only fight I ever got in on, at school was uh, what I thought was going to be an impressive defending her honor sort of moment to her, and I got sent to the principal's office and the whole deal, which was all very abnormal to me, and she was not the least bit impressed by any of it. Um, and I convinced my parents to let me go to dances, which was a very big deal in my uh, Southern Baptist home, where my dad was a pastor, um, to go to these dances in seventh grade was a big uh, shift in my home. I was the oldest kid, so that was part of it. Part of it was because that just wasn't done. Um, but in order to uh, impress and, and be with this girl, I, I somehow persuaded my parents to let me do that. Uh, but the, one of the, the, the story that really sticks out in my mind with her is uh, we went to homecoming together, which, you know, I mean, I was 12. So this consisted of my, uh, me and two other friends and one of their mom's minivans picking up these three girls, getting dropped off at a football game, getting picked up at the football game, dropping the girls off, going back home, right? It was all very exciting. Uh, and one of the friends, the, the worst part of this whole story is one of the friends... Uh, uh, was the girl that he took was not his girlfriend. It was his brother's girlfriend's little sister. So it was one of those deals. She was painfully shy, one of the shyest people I've ever been around. Uh, and the other two couples, me and this other uh, friend of mine, were holding hands with our girlfriends in seventh grade because that's what you do. And uh, I remember our other friend David looked at this girl and said, do you want to hold hands? And she said, no, thanks. And that was, those were the only two words she spoke to him the whole night. Um, and it still makes me like ache inside to think about that moment. It was so painful to witness. I'm Facebook friends with both of those people now. I moved away from this place like three months after this story. And so I don't really know them, but I constantly want to bring it up with them. Remember that time that he asked you to hold hands and you said nothing? Uh, anyway, point of the story is this. I... Uh, the homecoming was a big deal. Mums were a big deal. I know they're still a big deal in some parts of the state, and it's only the state. In case you've never been out of the state very much during football season, this is pretty unique to Texas. Uh, but I, uh, my mom was determined to make the mum for this girl uh, because she was crafty and because they were expensive, and she was determined she could do it cheaper. I had many objections to this plan, but I was overruled. She did it. It looked fine. Mom went out of town the day of homecoming, and when my dad got ready to take me with the mom in hand, I picked it up and looked, and on the back of the mom, the big cardboard circle that everything's stapled to, my mom, who's great in these things, just for some reason forgot to put a backing on it, so all the staples were exposed on the back of the mom that was supposed to, you know, attach to her, which was maybe on purpose so that something that heavy could actually, you know, attach uh, and be carried around. But we couldn't find the backing. This is my dad and 12-year-old me scrambling. I'm in a total panic. This is going to blow... What I'm most worried about is not the staples that are exposed that might injure her. What I'm most worried about is that this is going to disclose that my mom made the mom, right? Because you can tell this isn't a professional job if there's no backing on it. So at some point, my dad and I, the best we could come up with was to find a Mead spiral notebook, open the cardboard cover of that, trace the right size circle, cut it out, 
and glue it onto the back of the mum. And took it. As far as I know, she never knew the difference. I was at her house not long after that. It was hanging on your wall, on her wall, because that's what you do. Um, and as far as I know, she never knew that my mom made the mum. I thought, okay, success. I worked very hard for a long time to impress this girl, including that moment when I thought the whole world was going to crash if she found out. This girl's dad was, a, like I said, she was popular. Her dad was a doctor. She lived in Wildwood, which is not where I lived. And I was just terrified that, you know, my efforts to impress her were going to be exposed if she knew I had given her a homemade mom. So I got through that deal, and for reasons completely unrelated, as far as I know to this day, to the mom, she broke up with me abruptly about two months later and broke my heart. And I said, you had a homemade mom, haha. Uh, no, I just said that in my head when she broke up with me. Um, no matter how hard I worked to impress her, and how much it worked for a period of time, eventually it came up empty. Um, and we all have experiences where we work really hard to impress someone, and maybe they don't notice us at all, which is crushing. But I think worse for our souls, and part of what Jesus is getting at here, are those times that we work to impress other people and it works. Because that sets us on a course of feeding on that, of sustaining ourselves by that approval or by that kind of feedback or impressing other people, and ultimately it will let us down. It will not keep us satisfied. And that is the essence of what Jesus is after here. I want to focus in on three particular things that he talks about in this passage. And uh, some of you are like, three points. Uh, finally, that has three points. And then some of you are, but they're not on the screen, so what's the point? They're not on the screen. So here are the three things that I want us to walk through with this passage. One is that he issues, I think, a really direct caution to, self, to, to self-focus for us, to ego, to feeding our sort of sense of worth by playing to an audience. That's the first thing that he does here. The second thing that he's doing, and ultimately I think the heart of this for us as individuals is a reorientation for our hearts to the Father as the source of our real value, as the source of our real worth, and not these other things that are fleeting and empty. And then the third thing he does, I think, in this passage is he redefines the nature of God's kingdom, what, what marks righteousness, what marks the sort of nature of living in God's kingdom. So we'll go through each of those and, and talk about them in a little more detail, starting with this warning that he issues us about our egos, about the ways that we try to sort of feed our sense of worth through playing to, to other audiences. And that's all, uh, most of everything that he says in this passage is contained in verse 1, and then he illustrates it through three different examples. But in verse 1, he says, when you're practicing your piety, a lot of people think the best translation of this is righteousness. Um, the translation I'm using in general says piety, but there, there's a lot of uh, reason to believe that that's a, that's a uh, purer word for our meaning. When you're practicing your righteousness, mind you don't do it with an eye on the audience. Otherwise, you won't have any reward from your Father in heaven. So this is sort of the key, this is sort of the thesis of everything that he says here. And the first thing I think is worth noticing is that this is a normal temptation that we all face. It's even probably a natural tendency for most of us to, when we're doing something good, be aware of who's aware of it. 
And it doesn't make you weird. Uh, the lure to this doesn't make you unusually depraved or selfish. I think he's speaking to just a really natural part of being human when he talks about this, so much so that he's, what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's talking to a group of people who are interested in piety, interested in righteousness, interested in obeying God, in following in the way, and in talking with a group of people like that who are interested enough to sort of follow God, to follow him, to hear him teach about this, to sit and listen to him preach for a long period of time, he deems this uh, a really important word to open up to them as he's, as he's explaining kingdom life. So he started that in chapter 5, which we spent a lot of time looking at, and then in what we have marked as chapter 6. This is half of, over half of chapter 6, that what he decides is important for these people who are interested, not these terrible sinners who don't care about God, these people who are interested in living the life that God made them, made them to live. This is natural for them to be tempted to look around and see who's noticing the way that they're living and the good things that they're doing. And he walks them through this warning using three primary essential ways of life for God's people. And I want to read back through. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling uh, the passage in each section of the passage in half. So we'll skip. We'll get the first part of each little section. And then when we come back through in the next point, we'll get the second part of each section. So first he says, when you give money to the poor... Don't sound a trumpet in front of you. That's what people do when they're just play acting in the synagogues and the streets. They do it so that people will be impressed by them. I'm telling you the truth. They've received their reward in full. You're going to see this phrase again. Then he says, when you pray, you shouldn't be like the play actors. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners so that people will notice them. And then he says this same thing. I'm telling you the truth. They have received their reward in full. When you pray, don't pile up a jumbled heap of words. That's what the Gentiles do. They reckon that the more they say, the more likely they are to be heard. And then the third illustration, when you fast, don't be gloomy like the play actors. They make their faces quite unrecognizable so that everyone can see their fasting. I'm telling you the truth. They have received their reward in full. In full. These are not these three things that he talks about, praying and giving and fasting. These are not only good things to do. They are central acts of obedience for God's people then and now. So for the Jewish people at the time, uh, these were considered fundamental things that you did if you were part of God's people. You gave to the poor, you prayed, of course, and you fasted. These are evidence that your life is oriented to God and not oriented to yourself or to the easy allure of the ways of the world. But the warning in all three cases of these really fundamental basic things is consistent. In doing them, and I, I think the implication here is not just, hey, if you're one of these people who, when they do these things, starts doing this, I think the implication is when you do these kinds of things, this is likely to happen. You're likely to start turning at some point an eye away from singular focus on God in your giving, in your praying, in your fasting, and you're likely to become aware of the people around you and who's noticing you do this. And if in doing them, you begin to do it with an eye to the audience, the good that you're doing actually becomes corrupted. There's no way to sort of dice his words up to mean anything else. If, if your motivation shifts 
the good you're doing actually becomes corrupted because your heart and your soul become corrupted by corrupt motives. Okay? So in each case, I think it's worth noting, um, we, we like to keep things as black and white as possible, and it would be great if he said, if you do that, terrible things will happen. You will immediately feel guilt. You will know that you're a terrible person. He doesn't say that. He says, in each of these three cases, when someone is giving, praying, or fasting with an eye to the audience, they have received their reward in full. He doesn't say that there's no reward for that. We know that there's a reward at times for doing something good with an awareness of it being seen. We know that we get positive feedback in those situations a lot of the time. He doesn't say there's no reward for performing those good deeds. Um, we, we know that there's gratification in being noticed and being admired by others for, for doing good. He just says, that's it. <laughs> that's the fullness of the reward when that's why you're doing those things. Whatever positive feedback you can pull together from other people, that's it. There's nothing more to be expected. So once that recognition is gone, we all know it's fleeting when it comes, and we also know that it doesn't always come. If we all were to sort of break, do some sort of statistical breakdown of all these times in our lives when we've done something, hoping it will be recognized by other people so that we can feel better about it, we would probably come out 50-50 at best in saying it worked. <laughs> they actually noticed. Um, so it's a gamble if that's the, where you're going to put your money on getting a reward for the way that you're living. But even if you get it, that's the fullness of the reward. And by the way, add to that, that that's the fullness of the reward, uh, a characteristic um, of God's kingdom, which is this, those who work to make themselves first become last in the end, and those who are content to be last are first. I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of that, but it's worth remembering that. Not only do you, if that's the reward you're seeking, is that the fullness of your reward, but you're also now running up against a pretty basic kingdom standard, which is when you're working to be elevated, to elevate yourself, in the long run, you're losing. You're losing some kind of reward. Uh, so I, think, I don't think it's an overstatement to suggest that all of us struggle with this in some way or another. I struggle with it in lots of different ways. Um, when, and, and I think the advent, it's easy, this is easy and I think worthwhile to talk about, but the advent of social media is complica complicates this issue, right? Uh, because we're supposed to document everything we do and put it on the internet. Um, and that's not all bad. Not, uh, this is not, I'm, I'm not gonna rail on social media. Um, I also write quite a bit, and I put some of that out for public consumption. And so this is, this is an area where I struggle with this question um, of, am I doing things to sound clever uh, or to impress other people with my skill or what I'm thinking? Uh, or is, is my motive directed toward the Lord in the things that I do? I wrestle with that a lot in that space of my life. I could give you lots of other examples. I told a story about the, the ways that I tried to impress someone in seventh grade so that it would be a little bit funny, because if I start telling you stories about ways I'm trying to impress people now, it would just feel sad. Uh, but they're there. It's still a struggle for me, and it's still a struggle, I think, for most of us. 
So I think it's important for us to acknowledge that. I also want to say in this space that I don't think what Jesus is doing here is pushing us toward this sort of altruistic way of doing good where we're just completely indifferent to any kind of reward. So this happens a lot in discipleship conversation. This happens a lot just in any conversation about doing good is there's this sort of subtle or sometimes very explicit push toward you should not think about yourself at all. And I do think that the journey with Jesus is a journey of dying to yourself. So there's truth in that and there's value in that. But I don't think the primary point that Jesus is making here is that when you do good, you, shouldn't, you should just completely not care or numb yourself to any sort of positive thing that would come to you out of that. And, and, I, and I think... Um, there are, there, are reason, there are multiple reasons that, that that's not what he's saying. Uh, one of them is that, that that sort of effort toward altruism tends to fold in on itself. So I begin to demand of myself that I do good with no expectation of reward or recognition. And that process becomes this cycle of self-focus for me to make sure that I have the right motives. And that's always what I'm thinking about is, are my motives pure? something I should think about, but I shouldn't be trying to purify myself in such a way that then the focus is again on me. <laughs> and I may not be concerned about whether I'm impressing other people, though I may, because I may then want to be known as an altruistic person who doesn't care about what people think, right? But there's a whole other level of self-focus that happens here um, where uh, I, if I'm I'm, I'm constantly trying to purify myself of, of any self-interest. And the bottom line is, if I'm actually honest and looking, I'm always going to find some level of self-interest. So then I'm just going to be depressed <laughs> about doing it. And then I'm going to give up because this isn't true. This isn't worth it. You can't be altruistic like that. So I want to be clear. I don't think that's what Jesus is after. Don't get caught in that cycle um, of, of not looking at God, which is his real point here, um, and getting into this sort of navel-gazing self-focus of why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's not the point. Um, because I think self-attention is really at the heart of the problem that Jesus is diagnosing here in the first place. We're being called out of this preoccupation with and this elevation with ourselves into a kind of humility that's rooted in Jesus. Jesus, who was in very nature God, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of the servant. We're being called back into that discipleship. Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Which, for the record, the scripture then says that humility is why God lifted him up. We're being called into that way of humility, of, of losing that focus on ourself and redirecting our attention to God. Amy, Amy read a book a year or two ago um, that I have uh, kind of sped read. And uh, so last night I said, can I have your copy? Because it's all marked up. <clears throat> and uh, so I can find some of the best stuff. But I, I strongly recommend it. It's a very short book by Andrew Murray called Humility. One of the things he says here is when we realize that humility, which I think is what Jesus is pointing us toward here, is something infinitely deeper than contrition and accept it as our participation in the life of Jesus, we will begin to learn that it is our true nobility and that to prove it in being servants of all is the highest fulfillment of our destiny 
as men created in the image of God. The point here is to move us toward a kind of humility that is, the phrase I love here is, our, it is our participation in the life of Jesus. That's what he's after. He's warning us that when our eyes are on other people, we're living some other kind of discipleship. We're being discipled into their way. And we're being called instead into a kind of humility that is a participation in the life of Jesus. The whole point Jesus is making here is god focus. It's not this empty sort of obfuscation, this empty sort of escape of myself. The point is letting the gratification that we get from the recognition of other people uh, be rooted up and be replaced by the recognition and reward that we get from the Father. One of those things seems immediately more satisfying to us. It just does. In most of, most of the moments of our life, it is more immediately gratifying to get that feedback from other people, to get that recognition from other people, instead of leaning into, I will, I will look for that only from God. But, but Jesus is after that. He's after our motive. He's telling us, be careful of what's motivating you to do good, because the applause of other people is this sort of insidious motivation that gets inside of you and makes you want it more and need it more, and then it's gone, and then you're empty, and then you want it more. It, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle that he's trying to pull us out of because it will leave us empty. We're regularly faced with that choice, the choice between trying to please or impress or get our reward from other people or trying to please or impress or get our reward from God. And that's the second thing that I think he's pointing, he's doing here is he's reorienting us to the Father as the source of our value, the source of our worth. That shows up also in verse 1, which has this key idea of not practicing our righteousness in front of other people. But the second sentence here is, otherwise you won't have any reward from your Father in heaven. Notice that this idea of a reward from God continues to surface in the, in the back end of each of his examples. No, when you give money, don't let your left hand have any idea what your right hand is up to. That way your giving will be in secret and your father who sees in secret will repay you. The idea that we shouldn't be conscious of any sort of reward or positive thing for us in doing good is sort of, a, is sort of uprooted here by Jesus telling us again and again, your father who sees in secret will repay you. He says, when you pray, go into your own room, shut the door and pray to your father who is there in secret. And your father who sees in secret will repay you. And then he says, don't be like them and tells us how to pray, which we'll come back to, like I said, next week. And then at the end of this, he says, when you fast, tidy your hair and beard the way you normally do and wash your face so that others won't notice your fasting except your father privately. Then your father who sees in private, will repay you. He says three times here in verses 4 and 6 and 18 that the God who sees you will reward you if you do things for his sake in his presence and not to impress other people. He doesn't define that reward here. We can sort of make our way through the rest of what Jesus says in the New Testament and put some more definition to that. But, but I think this idea that God sees us when we do things for the right reasons, when we have the right motive and rewards us, matters for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's freeing for us 
no matter how much we think we need or want that feedback from other people or to impress other people, I think it's freeing for us to not be stuck in that cycle of, of um, being completely indifferent to there being any benefit to us in giving and in prayer and fasting or other forms of self-denial. These are the three examples he uses here, but we have other forms of self-denial, generosity, and service that we practice as followers of Jesus. So when he talks about the reward that we get here, I think he's freeing us from that cycle of trying to be completely altruistic. Uh, On the one hand, freeing us from the cycle of impressing people. On the other hand, freeing us from well, I can't think about anything good coming to me because that's unsustainable. And like I said, I think it makes us give up on the road and give up on service and selflessness uh, when we're constantly focused on, I can't ever think about anything good coming to me. So that's, that's one reason, I think, that, or, or one thing to, to, to at least gain from what he says here is we can be free of that sort of self-focus. The second thing that, that I think is important here is this notion that God will see us. And the reward part matters, but he emphasizes three times your father who sees you in private is the one who will reward you. Um, I think that settles our hearts and our minds back to where they belong, to this, this peace in God's presence. I no longer have to try to climb any ladders or impress anyone. I don't have to get, try to get enough social media likes or encouraging comments to feel good about myself. At the end of the day, I'm drawn back into my real source of value in life, knowing that I'm seen by God. And there's an assurance here that I don't have to earn his approval that if you run through this too quickly and don't really see what Jesus is saying, it's easy to say, oh, okay, so I need for him to see me doing good things, for him to approve of me. But I think there's a reason um, that, that Jesus chose the very simplest of things as his examples here. He didn't go out and choose extreme examples of things that would be difficult for people to do or that people would toil over impressing. He chose giving, praying, and fasting, which are, for the Jews of that day, the bare bones of obedience and life with God. You're not doing anything impressive here. Just by being faithful in the basics of life with God, this happens. He sees you in your quiet, simple faithfulness. And there's an assurance here in in that, I think, that, that I don't have to earn his approval by doing enough good or being a hero of the faith. He sees me in my faithfulness, in my very simple faithfulness, and he will reward me. Jesus repeats this same kind of idea in other places in Luke 14. He says, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. James repeats this idea and says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Peter repeats it and says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. This is consistent throughout the New Testament, this idea that when I humble myself, when I'm not looking to be elevated in the eyes of other people, that God sees me, that he's with me, and that he will reward me. We don't know, like I said, exactly all of the things that this reward entails, but here's a couple of things that I think are clear. First of all, 
there is the reward of freedom from, from that cycle of self-focus, and, and most importantly, a clearer fellowship with God himself. Isaiah said, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is the God of the universe. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the essence of who God is and where he is. He is present in the highest and holiest of places, and he is present with the humble. This movement for us puts us in clear fellowship with the Father. Murray goes on in the, in the book I read from before to say that humility is the one indispensable condition of true fellowship with Jesus. He says it's the only soil in which virtue takes root. It's not so much a virtue along with the others, but it's the root of all because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. The supreme point of our lives, and I think the real point of this passage, is to realize, and I don't, when I say realize, I don't mean just be aware of. I mean make real. The supreme point of our lives is to make real our relationship to God and our relationship with God. And every time we choose to look instead to the audience of others, we make a sort of trade that betrays us. You can say it betrays God, um, but I think it's simple enough in this case to say this trade that we make, every time we, we choose instead, that relationship, that, that, that approval of others, it takes that reward and gives back or sacrifices the simplicity and purity of being content with God's presence and approval as our reward. So one of the keys to all this, I think, is um, just deepening our awareness that we're always in God's presence. This sounds so simple that it, uh, it's hard to stand up here and talk about it and not feel like it's just going to go, that's the most basic thing I've ever heard. But I think that's one of the real points that Jesus is making here. You're seen. You're always in every moment in God's presence. And contrast that with if, if you're trying to play to this audience, you have to constantly try to get in their presence, first of all. You have to get that attention. You have to get noticed and get seen and then go through all the nonsense that we've already talked about in that cycle of playing to another audience. Not so with God. This is good news and bad news, right? The bad news is he really sees you and he really knows your motives. <laughs> he really knows your heart. But the good news is he really sees you all the time. And so if your heart is oriented toward, this is my only concern really is what, is what I'm doing, what God wants me to do. Does it keep me in fellowship with God? He sees me. I don't have to keep track I don't have to keep account. I don't have to worry. Am I getting enough positive feedback to match the good things I'm doing? It changes my relationship with other people because so much of the brokenness and dysfunction in our relationships is when we begin to sense that inequity that I've done this for you and this is what I get back in return. And if my heart is oriented toward when I'm serving you, I'm not doing that to get something back from you, present or future tense, or to keep some sort of ledger that we try to keep somewhat equitable, if my heart is oriented toward God, then I'm not stuck in that. I don't have to try to keep track of that stuff. 
I don't have to worry, am I getting enough good out of life based on the good that I put in? Because I believe that my father sees me trying to become, trying to let him make me who I'm meant to be. And he rewards me for that stuff. Jesus says in Luke 16, in talking to the Pharisees, who are the counterpoint in this whole thing, they are the ones who are the play actors. He says, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts, for what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. God knows your hearts. That's a caution. That's also a promise for those who aren't play actors, who aren't trying to impress other people, who accept that there's another way in the kingdom. I do think that there are more specific rewards <laughs> that he's referring to, that God sees you and gives you good things. But he tells us again and again that we were made for the life of the kingdom, and that becomes a reward unto itself. When we're living according to the kingdom, we discover the life that we were made for. It feels like death to self on the way in. And what we discover on the other side is a resurrection of a better life than we ever imagined. He's inviting us into that life where we really believe and experience that God's ways are better and that we find satisfaction in Him, in being known by Him, in being seen by Him, and in discovering the richness of kingdom life where the applause of the audience really is inferior to being seen and known and rewarded by God. So the third thing that I think he does here is this. I think he, he sort of redefines the nature of, of the kingdom of God. And he does that by affirming that what impresses people doesn't impress God. This is not a kingdom built on everybody trying to outdo each other. This is not a kingdom. It's not even a kingdom of good. We often think the kingdom of God comes to do away with evil. True. But it's also not a kingdom where we're in competition where we're trying to, you're living under this pressure to do enough good that you can say, I'm really building the kingdom here. This frees us. The way that Jesus talks frees us from that by affirming that that cycle of impressing people, it's not impressive to God. Remember one thing from Matthew chapter 5, and this was a hard part of Matthew 5, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's theology that we can work through to, to get a better understanding of that, but I think there's something really interesting that happens here in chapter 6 on the heels of Jesus having said this in real time just a couple of minutes ago. Okay, So imagine that just a couple of minutes ago he said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You're thinking, wow, those guys are impressive. They're really religious. And then a couple of minutes later, he says, when you're practicing your righteousness, be sure you don't do it with a mind on the audience. Otherwise, you won't have any reward from your Father in heaven. I think part of what's happening here is Jesus is saying, you want to know how to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? Don't play to the crowd with your good deeds. He's, he's not saying I, there's going to be a score sheet at the end and you're going to have to have done more good deeds than your average Pharisee. He's saying the nature of righteousness in Jesus is different than you think it is. It's not about impressing other people. It's about being who I made you to be and being content that I see that and it's enough 
and I will build the kingdom on the backs of people who are quietly living faithful kingdom lives. You can be sure of it, and you will be part of it. That will be part of your reward. We get a bit more insight, I think, into, into these words in Matthew 5. Uh, in Luke 16, the same ideas keep coming up. Jesus said, uh, th- this is the passage I read before, that um, he is warning the Pharisees that when you justify yourselves in the sight of others, God knows your heart. He knows what your real motive is. Because what you think is prized is not always prized by God. Some of it's an abomination. The nature of the kingdom is different than you think. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says the kingdom of God isn't about talk. It's not about what you say you do, the ways that you attempt to impress people. It's about power. In Romans 14, he writes, the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. And we're circling all the way back around here, has human approval. The focus here for Jesus and then in our discipleship on impressing an audience of other people misses the point of the kingdom. The point is simple peace with God. It is joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the point. And I think that frees us from any suggestion that you're somehow responsible to change the world. Um, and this is, an, this is an important point to me, and I think uh, is an important part of understanding Jesus himself and the life that he's calling us to. You're responsible to live the life that God made you to live. And for most people, that's not going to mean changing the world in the way that you're going to feel pressure in this age where there's so much activism and so much awareness via social media and all the ways that we're connected of what someone else is doing that seems really impressive, that seems really dynamic and really world-changing. And I want to be clear that I think this is part of a bigger picture of Jesus and the New Testament affirming a life of simple faithfulness lived in God's sight, of making that normal in the kingdom. It doesn't mean we shouldn't ever do big things or that someone doing big things that you know about is wrong. It means that the fact that those things happen is not, should not pressure you into feeling like you have some responsibility to change the world or do something impressive that people are going to look at and go, that's amazing. He's freeing us here, I really believe, from the frenetic pressure to change the world ourselves. And you think about other things that Jesus says about the kingdom. When he, when he tells these stories, the parables that we have, he compares the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows, it turns into the biggest of the shrubs. It becomes a tree, and birds of the sky can make their home in it. He compares the kingdom of heaven to leaven, which is... An, an obscure, tiny part of what is put into three measures of flour in the story that he tells, and it leavens the whole thing. Something small and unseen changes and make the nature of, the whole, of, of its whole universe that it lives in. In Matthew 18, he describes the Father in whose image we're made and who we're supposed to follow as the one who's more interested in the obscurity of finding the one lost sheep 
than staying and playing to the crowd of the 99. This is who God is, and this is whose image we're being transformed into. Paul wrote it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Again, the point of this isn't that you should never do anything that isn't quiet. <laughs> you should never do anything that people see, we, that we shouldn't do big things. We, the kingdom is going to be big, and it's already emerging in big ways. But that's not, that's not your responsibility to figure all of that out. You're being freed from the pressure to do all of these impressive, impressive things. He actually indicates here in one of the passages we just read a minute ago that when we live this way, respect, real respect from outsiders will be a natural result. And that's fine. He's not demonizing the admiration or respect of people around us. But this is a kind of respect that comes from a quiet, by most of our standards, unimpressive, simple life in the kingdom a life that isn't designed to impress anyone else. But he says, Paul, it suggests here that people will take note of what's unique about God's people and their sort of quiet disinterest in impressing people. And that's the heart of when, when I talk about this life of simplicity. I think that we are all being freed to a life of sort of quiet indifference to the applause of people, to impressing people around us because God sees us, and that's enough. I want to read this passage, and then I'm done. In Micah chapter 4, we get this vision, and this is one of these prophetic passages in the Old Testament that point to what's coming through the cross and the resurrection. Micah chapter 4, it tells us, "...in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills." Peoples shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is what we're made for. This is the kingdom that's coming no matter what you do or I do. This is what is coming from the God who sees us. And we waste our effort and I think sacrifice our true reward, which is partly participation in this. Sacrifice that true life to the full as God intends when we try to elevate ourselves as heroes of lesser stories than this, or somehow as heroes, as making ourselves heroes of this story. 
we're called to be part of this story, to help build for this. But we do that by faithfully living into this vision of kingdom, uh, of the kingdom being fulfilled where Jesus is the only true hero. No need for me to impress anyone. Jesus is who should be impressing people. That's what I want people to see through me. That's what God wants people to see through you. That's the freedom that Jesus is offering us here when he says, don't play to an audience. Know that God sees you. Let's pray. Father, we are your people, and even in this moment, we are in your presence. And so... Again, I ask that that would be real to us. And if we, have, if we have been in spaces or in seasons of our lives where we feel unseen, either by people who are around us or by you, I pray that something would change in our hearts and our spirits and that we would know that we are seen and that that would free us to the life that you made us for. And that this compulsion, this need uh, that we all feel to be admired and to do things that are impressive to other people, that that would just be lifted because that is a burden. It doesn't matter how good we are at it or how bad we are at it. It is a burden that you don't intend us to carry. You intend us to live simply and faithfully to the life that you've called each of us to, and that's different for everyone. It's more obscure for some of us. It's more noticeable for others. But our hearts are meant to be lived quiet simple lives of faithfulness to you. So free us to that life in Jesus' name. Amen.